0: Hello and welcome to the Everything is Black and White podcast. It's time for another episode of Gibbo's Corner. And today we've got um, a very special subject to talk about and that is um, a man, a legend of the club and that is Joe Harvey. Quite apt given that uh, the anniversary of the Fairs Cup is coming up next month. Uh, Gibbo, of course, was there watching that trophy be lifted. He was on the plane with the players and we'll no doubt get onto that in due course. But uh, John... A manager of Newcastle United, a captain of Newcastle United and also a a good friend of yours as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, quite an amazing uh, man. Without a shadow of doubt, if football is all about winning trophies and that's what everybody says, you know, put your medals on the table, then Joe Harvey is the most successful manager in Newcastle United's history more so than even Kevin Keegan and Sir Bobby Robson in terms of trophies won. I mean, this is the guy that skippered Newcastle to two FA Cup final victories in 51-52 and was on the coaching staff in 55 when they won the Cup again. He became manager of Newcastle in 1962 and was manager until 1975. That's 13 years. In that time, Newcastle won the Second Division Championship, the European First Cup, the Anglo-Italian Cup, two Texaco Cups and reached the FA Cup final with no relegations in that 13 seasons. Haven't taken them up. And anybody that says, well, yeah, we'll settle for the the first cup and even get into the FA Cup final. Let me tell you, the Anglo-Italian Cup was some competition. It was won in front of 45,000 people in Florence against Fiorentina on their own ground, 2-1, and on the way to that final, Newcastle beat Roma, Bologna and Torino, all in one-off games. There weren't two legs, so that was no main feat. The Texaco Cup was the Anglo-Scottish Cup. It was played between the the top clubs of um, England and Scotland, so it was quite a record for Joe, and in that period, he built three sides. In the 13-year period, he built three sides. The Second Division Champions of 1965, which was built around a half-back line of Anderson, McGrath and Eilly. The First Cup side of 69, of course, which was built around Winn Davies, Pop Robson, Bob Monker at the back. And then the FA Cup side of the beginning of the 70s, which was Super Mac, Hibby and Terry McDermott. Now, to build three successful sides like that, terrific
0: Take some doing and three quite different sides as well because the one that got mm. to the FA Cup in the 70s was it was a lot different to the one that got to the first cup and and that itself was it was a bit different to the one that actually won the second division
1: absolutely I think you can actually allow the the European win was in the middle you can see the progression in the building up of Newcastle from those three sides I mean the second division championship side didn't score a pile of goals uh, but it was very well organized with a great what was called in those days half back line. Uh, the the first cup side was built on on Davies the battering ram and pop picking up the pieces. By the FA Cup come along it was the the great number nine legend that was super-marked with his huge pace, huge excitement fed by fed by Hibby. So the the sides were very different. And Joe's ability and why Joe stands out with all the great Newcastle United managers is that he was wonderful at man management and he had a terrific eye for a player. He couldn't coach, but then Brian Clough wasn't a coach. You don't have to, if if you're a manager, be a coach. He he brought in coaches in Newcastle like Jimmy Greenough when they were second division champions. there went Dave Smith, there went Keith Berkenshaw, who became manager of Spurs. But he did, the two things he did, he did well. His man management was second to none and he was very, very clever at spotting a
0: good player. Definitely. So, born 11th of June 1918, he was the club's longest-serving captain. Um, he joined from Bradford's at the end of the Second World War, having been a sergeant major in yeah. the Royal Army Physical Training Corps, which, has obviously, which obviously set him in really good stead, um, gained respect... He'd been through that disciplined nature, um, which is obviously missing from from the game today. But he'd been through that, you know, he'd seen what it meant outside of football. There was a life outside Mm. of football and he'd been through the tough times. And to bring that into the dressing room, that was respected. Certainly as a player and in his early days as
1: a manager, like anybody, you mellow, but he was a real Sergeant Major on the field. He was a natural leader of men. Uh, and when he was playing, you've got to remember, he was playing way, way before the maximum wage, etc., etc. They were getting pennies in those days. And when they were playing in the great side that he had with uh, Jackie Milburn and Bobby Mitchell, etc., etc., just before it was time to go out, he would always pick up the ball, stick it in his arm and say, «Heeway, lads, it's time to get the bane and pair of shoes». And that was his way of meaning «We'll go out and win, we'll get the win bonus» and that'll get the kids a pair of shoes. And that was his phrase that he used time and time again. And he was such a legend as a player, and the, the the great players looked up to him, because the 50s side were great players, that when he retired after 52, he was kept on to be a coach in 55. And the first thing Newcastle United did when they hit rock bottom after that was he'd learnt in the apprenticeship with uh Barrow and Workington was to bring him back to St James's Park when Newcastle were at the lowest ebb and set him off again and did they get it right because he uh, in the next thirteen years it was all success.
0: Hmm. So when he joined Newcastle um, inside forward rather than a, than a, a defender. Mm. And he, he adapted and he was adapted into arguably one of the clubs best defenders ever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these
1: days we would call him um, a centre-back alongside the centre-half, although he was a right-half, as it was called in those days. He really played alongside Frank Brennan, who was known as the Rock of Gibraltar because he was this eight-foot-six guy, granite guy. He won, I mean, Frank Brennan went on tour to South Africa after Newcastle won the Cup and he turned up to go out to South Africa and everybody had luggage all over the shop and he turned up and he had a toothbrush in the top pocket of his blazer and, and a little bag with a flannel in and that's what he took away with him. He bought a couple of shirts out there. He was just, he was desperate Dan Plus. But the the ability of Harvey was that he was a great man-manager. He didn't treat everybody the same. For example, at Newcastle, uh, the last side he built when he had Supermac and Hibby two great talents but so different people um, with Hibby uh, who needed to um, be made to feel wonderful it was always a, a arm round the shoulder um, you're my little general you're the boy that makes a side take, have a fag and he would give him a fag as he was coming off the pitch in, in Hibby or off training and Hibby would like the fag with Super Mac, who didn't need a kiss and a cuddle, it would be a bandy legged so-and-so, there's no chance of scoring a goal this afternoon, and MacDonald would get on his hind legs and say, score a goal, I'll tell you what, I'll score that. And then Joe would laugh afterwards and, and, and Super Mac would realise what had been happening. Both
0: of them loved him to death. Um, did you Do you think there was elements of the way he was going to manage um, the stars of Newcastle United in it, in his playing days at Newcastle as he captain? Could you see the kind of techniques there?
1: Without a shadow of doubt, um, as he was the leader of men. If anybody had a problem in the dressing room, they would go to Joe as the skipper rather than Stan Seymour, who when the whole club and was chairman, manager and everything rolled into one. They would go and see uh, Joe, who would help to sort it out. And when Newcastle won the Cup in 1955, one of the real reasons they won it was Joe Harvey, who didn't even play. Because... Dougal Livingstone was the manager who um, really got the backup of all the players because he tried to tell Bobby Mitchell how to side foot a ball, one of the greatest wingers Newcastle United have ever had. Uh, and he tried to tell Jackie Milburn how to play as a centre forward, which was quite ludicrous. And there would have been open rebellion but for the fact that Joe, as a coach, was able to smooth the waters enough to get Newcastle through the cup final and win the cup. And of course, Dougal Livingstone's time was up because he would he dropped um, he dropped War Jackie for the final.
0: It's interesting you mention that because I've heard a story that um, just after Harvey joined Newcastle, he went on strike with with uh, Len Shackleton over the accommodation that the club were providing.
1: Yeah, there there were quite a volatile uh, bunch of Newcastle players at the time and. Um, when things weren't right, they were slowly put right by Stan Seymour, who had come into the club during the war and brought in all the local lads, uh, Ernie Taylor, um, Charlie women etc., etc et cetera, et cetera Carol Corbett, uh, and built a side together, but they still had rough edges. And he put it right. And the players just... Adored him. I mean, Bobby Cowell was his best mate, who was the right-back, who played in... Everybody forgets Bobby. uh, They say, who played in all three cup finals of the 50s? And immediately say, Melbourne Mitchell, who were the two superstars, who was the third one? It was actually Bobby Cowell, a local lad that played right-back. And Harvey wasn't just with the stars. His best mate was the right-back, Bobby Cowell, who was a very good player. But... But you're a real club man rather than a superstar. Bob Stoko, who was always geared to be the successor to Joe Harvey um, and did play in the 55 final when Harvey wasn't there, went on to manage to a great extent and do so well in managed at Sunderland, totally modelled himself on Joe and spent the whole of his career both as a manager and as a player playing golf with Joe every week that, that God sent, even when he was manager at, at Sunderland. and uh, He had that sort of response from the players. So it was a natural progression to bring him back to manage Newcastle United. They, he'd applied for the job, funny enough, to be manager of Newcastle United when Charlie Mitten got it. And, we got Charlie Mitten instead, but that, William McKeague made that decision rather than uh, Stan Seymour. But it was just a matter of time and Joe had learned the rudiments of management down at the bottom end of it and come to Newcastle at a very difficult time, but slowly and surely, and not so slowly, built Newcastle up, starting with his championship side, of course. On the pitch as a defender, what was his best attribute? Oh, A... Uh, positional sense, physical strength and above all organisation. It is said to a great extent that Bob Monker was the young version of Joe Harvey. He looked a bit like Joe, a lot more sturdy than Joe, but a bit like Joe in terms of black wavy hair, another natural leader of men. Uh, and I think Joe saw himself in Bobby and made Bobby skipper in the one the, um, the first cup and went to the cup final with, with Bobby. Uh, he was a great organiser. He wouldn't go in the ball and try to do any tricks or anything of that nature. He alongside Brennan Nobody was going to get past those two. Um, and then he would get the ball and hit the delight of, of Joe's life. Joe loved people that could do things he couldn't do. And the delight of Joe's life was little Ernie Taylor, who played inside forward immediately in front of Joe. He he, he made all the jockeys at Gosforth Park look like giants. Who was that small, little Ernie Taylor. And he would just say, give the ball to Ernie. Just, we'll get it, give it to Ernie
0: and he'll do the rest
1: and and that's the way the 51 side was put together.
0: He retired at age 34 mm. despite being a regular um yep. Newcastle United. Was that because he could he could foresee what was coming? He could see that he couldn't keep up with the youngsters that were were starting to rise yes. through the league?
1: Yeah, and and yes, and also I think it was coming to the fact that he was a very shrewd man and a lot of things footballers can't recognize is is when they're getting over the hill. footballer always thinks he's got another two years in him. Um, And sometimes a footballer can overstay his welcome and perhaps even tarnish his long-term image by hanging on too long and getting taken to the cleaners. And there's nothing more sad, think of George Best, etc., etc. There's nothing more sad than a quality player suddenly struggling. Uh, and he wasn't going to let that happen and you've got to bear in mind by the time the 55 side went to Wembley it, Newcastle were very much on the wane and after that period they they, they struggled under, um, and got relegated with Charlie Mitten etc so he could see his days were numbered, and also the side's days were numbered. Uh, but because he was valued so much by Seymour, he joined the coaching staff, uh, and as I say, he was the go-between that stopped the ship from sinking with Dougal Livingston.
0: Well, certainly. So then he worked his way up um, into management. The job for Newcastle always seemed to be the one he wanted. No question. Um, Crooktown, Barrow, Workington... Um all, you know, right at the lower end of the ends of the league. But I suppose that just shows what kind of man he was. He was never just waiting sure. or expecting the job. He knew that he had to go out and earn his stripes. Sure.
1: And and in those days you earned the stripes that way. If you you may well have finished at the top as a player, but you started in management at the bottom. You, these days if you were a superstar you can often walk straight into management at at the highest level with no expense. But if you look at Brian Clough started management at Hartlepool, Joe Harvey started management with Barrow and Workington as far as the Football League was concerned. That was the way you did it in, in those days. And then you, you found your experience, then the big club come a-calling. And when Newcastle come a-calling, it was a big club, but it wasn't a big club on the heights there were a lot of aged players who needed clearing out and old players that he knew like uh alf mcmichael etc etc and while joe he had the um iron fist inside the velvet glove he would he would come across as a very amiable sociable fun guy but he never flunked decisions and he never flunked the hard decisions and cross him, and you felt the wrong side of his tongue.
0: Well, certainly, I mean, you say they're not a big club, but to, to Joe, was it the club that oh, he wanted to well, manage? Oh, yes,
1: it was a huge club, but but in decay. Yeah. It was a huge club, but in decay. Um, which is the way you get. Most most managers take jobs because of clubs in decay. Yeah, you don't take the job. It's very rarely you're lucky enough to take the job when they've just won the championship and a guy's retired. That was the case with uh, Ferguson, of course, but it's not the case normally. Um, and so he took a club that needed a ruthless streak and he provided the ruthless streak And he very quickly, when you consider, and he came in 62, by 65, we'd won the championship, second division championship, to come up into the top division. So he built a side pretty, pretty quickly, in his own image, his first side.
0: Did it hurt him when Mitten got the job ahead of him? To a certain extent it did, because Mitten
1: Mitten was a a, a fly-by-night. I mean, he he was the most amazing kaleidoscope sort of manager. Uh, Car crash to be a car crash of manager, to be truthful. And I think he realised what Charlie was. But I think to a certain extent as well, he wanted to throw his hat in the ring because he wanted Newcastle United to know this is my club and I want to manage it. But I think with hindsight, getting a bit more experience with um, Barrow and Workington, who were league sides then, you've got to remember, not now, where they're non-league, that stood him in good stead. And I think he knew uh, he'd put his calling card in by uh, making it well known he wanted the job, but he could afford to wait. And I think he got it at the right time.
0: Interesting. I spoke to Ron McGarry, who was at Workington with uh, Joe, and Joe encouraged him to go and join Bolton Wanderers and said look correct in two years time I'm going to you Newcastle I'll come back for you and uh, he did and McGarry was top goal scorer as Newcastle when the when the title in that the in game. that second
1: division championship side he mm.
0: he was uh, top goal scorer and a lot of people
1: tend to forget that um despite being injured during all the run into that championship um he finished up top goal scorer amazing character and Joe knew what he could do, knew his strengths, which were physical strong and he could put the ball in there, knew his limitations, there was no frills about his play whatsoever. There was no pace about his play. Um, but he also knew what he would bring to the dressing room in, in terms of team spirit, etc etc. Which was very important because when Joe took over the team spirit was nil. And um, so that was part of building it up. And and he built up the early days he built up he got some good players in, um, as you remember, he, he brought in Albert Bennett to play up front. A lot of people forget that. He brought in Albert Bennett to play up front with Wynne Davies. Um, this was the season you, after new, they would come up um, to qualify for the first, the first cup. Um, and he he was a local lad Albert was you know would gone beyond the one McGarry situation now and Bobby Cummings that had played center forward in those days, and he was looking for other forwards f- to move the Joe was always looking to move the club on he he was never content with what he had, and it became Davies and Bennett and it might have gone that way into the first Cup, but for Bennett getting himself injured, and he was regularly injured. Uh, and Pop Robson who had played outside right uh, as Jackie Milburn had when he was first at Newcastle coming alongside Davison was wonderful but Bennett was a a typical example of a happy-go-lucky guy uh, who was a a, a quality played for England under 23s and would have had a great career but for for injuries Um, and was a Good good mate of mine we used to go out and uh, have a few goggles together uh, always I isn't that on night when it was allowed and I think uh, there's a quite a well known story about we're going about him phoning me on a wednesday night and saying you know come out for a drink but I he yeah love to love it. he says the missus is away we'll go into town have a few we had a few goggles in town it was early in the week uh, i had a few goggles in town went called in a nightclub just to make certain that everything was all right in there and eventually got back to his place and he i was going to sh- get a taxi and shoot off home he says well ridiculous he said uh, just stay here uh, the missus away just stay here and go into work in the morning from here That's a good idea so it was a Morton and Roy situation. I didn't go to bed in the spare room. For some reason I went to bed in his room in the double bed next to him. Went to Kip. It was like Morton and Roy sitting up in bed, you know. I went to Kip. That's all I thought about. It. Next morning I could just hear the phone ring. And I I came to feeling a bit rather fragile. And I can just hear Albert answer the phone. And there, he suddenly, I can hear him say, yes, boss. And I think, oop, I'll listen into to this. Um, and it was Jovi on the phone. Uh, and it was ten to eleven in the morning because we hadn't got to bed till three or four uh ten to eleven in the morning he'd slept in missed training of course and so joe phones his house and albert could think very very quickly on his feet uh, sometimes quicker and he could think with his feet he could think on his feet and he, he suddenly realized oh so he said oh boss he said i'm terribly sorry yes i was going to give you a phone after training he said um, I think I've come down with a virus. I could hear this side of the conversation. Yeah, I think I've come down with a virus, he said. Uh, I feel awful, feel dreadful. He said, uh, I'm pretty certain it's only a 24-hour thing, but I didn't want to give it to the boys and that, so I've stayed away from Trent. Joe says, that's terrific. You've done well, son. You've done, right Now, you just stay in the house, keep warm there, and we'll see you in the morning. And, and he's saying, right, gaffer, right, gaffer And he's just about to hang up, and Joe says, oh, but wait on a minute, Albert, Albert. And he says, yes, Gaffa. He says, hey, whatever you do, by the way, about this virus and all that, he says, don't tell the press. It Just look, the, the fellow lying next to him in bed was the press. Uh, but that was Joe. And, I mean, it was a very different relationship in those days. Um, you could get close to players on one-on-ones. Um, interviews with the managers were never in press conferences. And... Um, And most days when I was working for the Chronicle Arts, I went up and saw Joe Harvey in the morning on my own. So if he'd fallen out with you or he'd taken objection to something, he's going to stonewall you that morning, if not. So you had to build up a relationship with the manager and with the players. Now it's more collective. You know, manager appears three times a week in front of all the press and after games and before games, used to do... Uh, after games you might get a huddle of four or five guys, try to catch them together. But it was very much on a personal uh, relationship. And um, I preferred it that way. Uh, and it worked that way. Um, and as I said, just talking about Joe, he got Albert Bennett in, who played up front. Wynn w- Davies, now, he was one of the great signings. I mean, Joe signed two wonderful centre-forwards, when you think of it. He signed... McGarry for the first side then he signed Wyn Davies for the European Cup side and he signed Supermac for the FA Cup side um, Wyn Davies had played for Bolton up here in the game where Newcastle clinched promotion from the second division not the actual championship but promotion Bolton were up here they had two great players Wyn Davies and Franny Lee who went on with Man City in England etc cetera, etc cetera. Wynne Davies was frightening. And John McGrath was a Newcastle centre-half. He'd arrived as a ball-playing centre-half. Joe, who didn't like ball-playing centre-halves, turned him into a killer centre-half. They took people off by their stocking tops. And uh, Joe told Big John McGrath, remember it was the Anderson-McGrath-Niley-Hoffback line, told McGrath, you're going to have to physically cut this Davies down to size because he is quality and he could give us a bad time and we mightn't go up um, when Davies hit the bar hit the post in the first 20 minutes uh, McGrath got a hold of him and um, reduced him from being 6 foot 3 to about 4 foot 3 with some of the tackles he put in uh, he became become totally ineffective after that and we ran out winners but Joe's admiration was so big that he went down after that with, with Newcastle up to sign Win Davies for Newcastle United, and um, he was a, a different character. Win Supermark was the huge extrovert. Win Davies was the massive introvert, and um, he went to Bolton to sign him, did a deal with him, and right at the end of it, Win said, uh, "Gaffer, is it all right if I speak to my mother before I sign?" Joe said, "Of course it is." So he went over to the to the phone in the the director's room Wyn and phoned this number and he was actually phoning a coin box at the end of the street in Carnarvon where his mum lived and his mum was waiting in the coin box for the call he phoned the coin box she picks up the phone and, and Wyn starts talking to her about the deal what he'd been offered and whether he should sign in Welsh uh, because he, he obviously he was a Welshman but a lot of Welsh guys can't speak uh, can't speak uh, Welsh, but it, it was prevalent in the north of Wales. And Joe said, Bloody hell, Gabor, he said it was like my first uh, signing of an overseas player, he said, because I couldn't understand the language he was talking in. <laughs> and and uh, he had this wonderful relationship with Wynne, um, who appeared. To a lot of people, including a lot of pressmen, to be aloof and and, and standoffish. In fact, they admitted later on that he was shy. Uh, but he, a lovely man, I have so much time for him. I'm very close to him now. But he was a, a an amazing character at the time. I mean, it was said that um, he was so unused to being a big money, to having big money, which he got at Newcastle, big money for those days. He always said that when he went for a newspaper, he negotiated for it rather than bought it. And he used to meet the boss at Chester Street where he was in digs with Tommy Gibb to get on the team coach to go south. And he used to buy the bruised fruit in the market at Chelsea Street because it was cheaper than ordinary fruit and bring a bag of bruised fruit onto the coach.
0: <laughs> Matt, a lot of people might not know this about Harvey, but he wasn't just a man manager. He wasn't just, you know couldn't just get the players it, but he really did have an eye for talent. He really knew how to spot a player.
1: Oh, I, I mean, it, it, it's incredible. When we when we look at the, the, the guys Joe bought for Newcastle United over his 13 years, um, and these weren't ready-made stars. You know, anybody can sort of go out and, and and buy Ryan Giggs in his pump because you know what you were getting. He bought Supermax, when he was 21 and had never played in the first division, never kicked a ball in the top flight, he bought Terry Ebbett from Leeds Reserves, who, who was he bought Terry McDermott from Bury, who went on to win European Cups with Liverpool and win a pile of England caps. He bought Willie McFall, who was goalkeeper for Newcastle for donkey's years, uh, bought him from Lingfield Part-time Football in Northern Ireland. He bought Tony Green from Blackpool, who is a lot of older fans will say is still one of the greatest players Newcastle United have ever had, although he got this horrendous injury. Cut down by injury. And he bought Wyn Davies from Bolton. He bought... uh, This was also the guy that had the bravery to buy Stan Anderson, way, way back when he was building his first side who was a Sunderland legend that played 400-odd games for Sunderland and to buy him to come and play for the most hated club, Newcastle United and did a job and he also had the guts to sell later Newcastle's best player, Alan Suddick a lad with huge talent and natural ability for 60 grand, That was massive in those days Bought three players with that money, John McNamee, um, Tommy Robson, Dave Elliott, and that kept Newcastle from going down. They were, at that stage, around the Christmas time, in danger of going down. He sacrificed Suddock because that's the only way he could raise money to get three players in elsewhere. And his eye for talent was was second to none, to be truthful.
0: How did he deal with the change in transfers? Or because he came in and over the time he managed Newcastle there was a big kind of change in how much a player was worth um, what did Harvey make of that how did, did he adapt to that as his role of you know bringing those players in
1: yeah um, well he, he was never afraid of, of spending money um, but he never had the money that was going to be ludicrous he wasn't going to be able to do a, a world record fee like Sid John and KK did for Alan Shiva etc. Et but he spent big money. I mean he he spent the first £100,000 Newcastle United had ever spent on a player which was Jenky Smith which was the whole profit I think from winning the European Fair Cup. He bought one player because he could play. Joe didn't play. Joe stopped people from playing when he was a player. But he loved players that did play. I told you about Ernie uh, Taylor, and he bought Jinky Smith for that reason now it's debatable how much of a success Jinky was or wasn't certainly a crowd pleaser he bought him he, he spent a record amount of money to buy Supermac 21 never played in the top flight was playing for Luton Town at the time uh, and he always says Supermac he signed him 71 on the F, FA Cup final weekend End of the season, and uh, Supamac always tells a story. He turned up at the Great Northern Hotel at King's Cross to meet Joe, uh, under the blanket if we're down for the FA Cup. The Thursday was the always the football writer's big bash for player of the year, and the Saturday was the Cup final. He met Joe, and Joe stuck his hand out and said, All right, you're the little bugger that's cost me 30 grand extra.'' And he'd scored a hat-trick in the last game, uh, for Luton and he reckons, Joe reckoned Luton put on ten grand for each goal he scored in that last game and it was a it was a record fee. He So he was never afraid to chase him back his opinion on, on a player. I mean, it was brave to... You know, with hindsight, Supermac was a dolly of a signing. He, he's become a number nine legend. He was 21 and never played in the top flight. That's bravery to do that. Jinky Smith was a ball-playing Tanner ball player, as they used to say of Scottish players. He had Aberdeen in Scotland, and, and, and he bought him to come down here. He bought Benny Aventoft, who was uh, the first foreign player Newcastle had had since um, the Robledos. But he'd come in via Scotland playing for Morton, uh, and he made the, the first Cup winning side. Um, he adapted well, but he also found, as I say, you know, Hibby was playing for Leeds reserves. Terry McDermott was a box-to-box runner It Bury uh, that nobody was taking. And, and he become a European uh, Cup winner with Liverpool, etc. Um, wonderful eye for talent.
0: And of course, a lot harder to spot the talent back then than it is today. No YouTube or Wise Scout like there is today. Absolutely not. Um, Absolutely not. Just before we get on to then... Um, a few more questions about you. just a, a reminder that we're holding a live event we're taking Gibbo's Corner out to the Ware rooms on May the 2nd tickets are £5 that gets you a free pint of soft drink as well and uh, ticket proceeds go to the Newcastle United Fans Food Bank you can over to our website to find um, details about that, are you looking forward to that one Gibbo? I am indeed and I'm looking forward to my free pint from you
1: and that <laughs> one as well uh, yeah I am because um, I love reminiscent about newcastle um and i've been brought up to write in the newspaper and now write on a website as well and do podcasts like this which are terrific fun but it is great that, it, to talk in front of a live audience and um, it, it can also be a, a nervous thing because you know you're getting the feedback immediately i write in the newspaper i don't get a feedback necessarily or i certainly didn't in the old days now you do with social media, but it's a feedback you can switch off if you don't know. You can't switch off an audience, is it? No, certainly funny. not. It's great fun, but it also can give you a tremendous buzz. And um, talking to Newcastle United fans, I'm basically one of those. And I would sit there in the old days as a kid and sit goggle-eyed one to the year stories. It's good fun.
0: Hugely looking forward to it. Fantastic. We head over to the website to get all the deals Back to Joe Harvey. Mm. Um what kind of man was he like off the pitch? We're going to talk about the Fairs Cup yeah. in a moment and obviously onto the, the FA Cup final. But off the pitch, like you've briefly mentioned, you got to know him quite well. You go up at James Park every morning speaking to him. Um, because you look at him, you look at him when he's playing days, you look at him, just the pictures of him. He looks like, um, you know, he's a big man. He's He commands, um, casts a shadow, shall we say. Was his um, personality the same as the way he looked in person?
1: Yeah, initially it was. I mean, like anybody, he mellowed as time went on through experience and realised that being a hothead in quotes is not necessarily the answer all of the time. Uh, But let's put it this way, players didn't want to cross him. Uh, He would be Uncle Joe when things were going well and he could be Sergeant Major Harvey when things weren't going well. But his sheer size, uh, and you know, the ability to have a great warmth as well as this iron fist um, is very potent uh, combination for both uh, players. I mean, I've never known so many players love a manager as I love Joe. And yes, that went on. It went on with Keegan, and it went on with Bobby Robson. It happens in football, but a lot—I can name you a hundred managers at Newcastle United where it didn't happen at all. Um, He was a guy. There was a a family man. He loved his golf. Basically, his his two loves were Newcastle United and the golf course. And he spent—if he was away from Newcastle United, he was on the golf course. But a lot of the time he was away from Newcastle United, he was scouting, um, looking for players. Uh, and he looked at them personally. He would never sign a player on recommendation without looking at that player himself and deciding himself. So in those days, if a player came to Newcastle, you knew he was a Joe Harvey signing. If a player comes to Newcastle or any other club these days now, you don't know if it's a managerial signing or whether the signing has been foisted on the manager. You knew he was a Harvey signing in those days,
0: most certainly. And did you ever get well, going off him? Did you ever get poor, off uh, Yes,
1: I would have been a very poor journalist if I hadn't, um, because my job, my job and his job, was suddenly was on occasions conflicting. Uh, his job was to get the best for Newcastle United. My job was to tell the punters the way I saw it and what was happening behind the scenes and what was going to happen. And sometimes you want to keep certain things a secret. Uh, My job wasn't to keep secrets uh, unless it was to the benefit of all concerned. Um, But the great thing about Joe is that if you won his trust, if he rated you, and if he knew what you were doing was for honest reasons and not devious reasons, and that you loved Newcastle United as much as he loved Newcastle United, then he wouldn't hold grudges. Um, And he would use me on occasions um, to his advantage. I mean, he used me, for example, because he stayed very much part of Newcastle United after um, he finished as manager, because he was part of the fixtures and fittings until the day he died and he used me as a go-between to get Arthur Cox to be manager of Newcastle United when he didn't want an official approach to Arthur Cox through the front door if Arthur wasn't going to be interested in coming to Newcastle United so he used me to sound out Arthur to see if he would be interested Arthur was at Chesterfield at the time he had been coached to um, Bob Stokoe when Sunderland won the FA Cup And he used me as the go-between to get to um, Arthur Cox, Arthur's feedback to me. It meant I was going to get the inside story if he'd come, of course, so there was something in it for me. Uh, Arthur wanted to come, I put the two together, Arthur did come. And then Arthur, again with Newcastle in the Doldrums, and Arthur signed a certain Kevin Keegan and from that went on and signed Terry McDermott, McCreary, Rhoda and Peter Beardsley and Newcastle were a power again so yeah so Harvey would, would use you but the wonderful thing is that he didn't hold grudges if he, had it, he could have a standout fight with you one day because he didn't like what you put in the paper you turned up to see him the next and if he rated you it was as though the stand up fight hadn't happened
0: on to then the FA cup obviously the anniversary is mm. coming up um, very soon the Years, amazing um, it's it's a sad thought in many ways. Yeah. Um, did he go into that competition thinking he could win it?
1: Great question. He went into that competition the way Newcastle United went in with absolutely no fear, um, and I actually believe it was naivety that produced no fear. Um, Newcastle had never ever been near. A European tournament before they got in on the one club, one city rule um, and Joe Harvey and the team went in thinking this is an exciting proposition, we don't know how far we're going to go, we're going to really enjoy it and the big thing with Joe is he it was, it was Instead of looking at the teams we were about to play, Fiannaud was our first one, who had a European record that was absolutely colossal. Uh, We went on and played Glasgow Rangers, who had a huge uh, pedigree, and Luch Pestosa, the best side in Europe at that time. But Joe Harvey never attached too much attention to the opposition. He always said, if we get it right, let them worry about us. Now, if you went, and then we went on to play into Milan, etc. If you went to play these sides and got absolutely concerned about their reputation, you could terrify yourself before you actually went into games. Joe was Joe's expression, the famous expression whenever you cross-examined him during Europe was, I don't worry, son, it'll be all right on the night. Uh, um, uh, and he took... He took that if he got Newcastle organised at the back, they knew the set pieces, they got the attitude right, They, the opposition should worry about us because we are good enough to do it. And he didn't weigh down the team with too many tactics that was to nullify the opposition. And I think that naivety rubbed off on Newcastle. And once they got on a roll through Europe with the fans but I mean for the fans it was wonderful they'd never been outside of the Isle of Wight to, to follow Newcastle in their life and all of a sudden they're travelling all over Europe and we, the Chronicle were running trips with, with over a thousand people going over to, to games abroad it, it was an absolute time of joy and, and it started off so uh, wonderfully against Fiannode who had a massive pedigree in Newcastle's, knocked four past the at St James's Park
0: so was there a moment, because obviously you travelled um, away with them all. Every the yeah. Was there a moment where Joe pulled you aside and said, I'll tell you what, there's a chance we, we could win this?
1: Oh, yeah, yes. I mean, I, I, I actually think from the start, he, he kept saying, listen, we sometimes underestimate how good we are. We'll take some beating, I'll tell you that. I've got monker at the back. I've got monker at the back. I've got Pop. And and win up front, and I play with wingers. Um, you know, we'll take some beating. Now, when you look back on that side, perhaps the only amazement there was with me. And I don't want to do a disservice to anybody in that side because it was a wonderful side. But we didn't have a Terry Hibbert or a Tony Green in midfield. Hmm. We had two relentless runners in Tommy Gibb and Benny Aventoff but we didn't. Joe went on and built skilful midfielders like Tommy Craig and Hebby and Green and Jenky and Tommy Cassidy who were knee-deep and wonderful ball-playing midfielders. But that side didn't have one of those. But it it worked itself to pieces. um, And we happened to have Wyn Davies. And when he played abroad, the, the continental sides had never come across a centre-forward like him in their lives, where the ball was pumped long in the air. He got everything. They, they thought football was exactly that. It was played with the foot. And they couldn't handle the bravery and the um, determination of Davies.
0: You mentioned there Bob Moncair. Um, mm. So his Newcastle United career didn't really get off to the best of starts. And then obviously it kind of progressed to the point where you know, he capped Newcastle, Newcastle to a, a European trophy. Um how much work did Harvey have to do with him to mold him into what many people like you 've mentioned briefly oh. um, a kind of a, a second coming of Harvey in many ways?
1: yeah, I, I mean the interesting thing was that um, he was already a kid, Bob, at uh, Newcastle when Harvey came in um, he uh, had been a kid from being playing for Scotland Boys and had come down here. He was more of an attacking. Up, believe it or not in those days when Newcastle won the Youth Cup he scored the winning goal in the final the first time Newcastle ever won the, the Youth Cup before they won it again with Gaza all those years later and David Craig was in that side with Monks etc and um, he was converted by Harvey into not only a centre-half or a sweeper as we called him then the guy that played behind the centre-half mopping up um, rather than alongside him and he built Harvey built him in his own image and um, and because he saw his own strengths in bob and the strengths of um leadership uh, as well um because never underestimate all great sides have great skippers england won the world cup with bobby moore skipper in them and bob munker was our bobby moore uh, the same leadership skills the same reading of the game, uh, the same one pace, uh, he was ours. And um, I, he quickly saw himself in Moncur and built the Newcastle side round Moncur. Um, although, as we say, at the start, Moncur had an injury and missed the start of our first cup winning uh, run through injury. Uh, and, but by the, it's amazing, isn't it? Missed Fiannaud, uh, missed the start, Um, and ends up scoring a hat trick over the two-leg final and at one time, you know, Newcastle I forget which game, uh, abroad had a a crisis with a goalkeeper Um, you never had all the players on the bench like seven today with a cover goalkeeper sitting on your bench every game you didn't have that um, but we went over with one goalkeeper, went aboard with one goalkeeper, which is Willie McFall. And uh, if anything happened in training before the match, said that Bob Moncur was going to play in Europe in goal for Newcastle United. Uh, that is the way it was in those days.
0: That's commitment. Um, when Derry's during that uh, trophy run, um, the, the first cup, very brave you've described him as in previous podcasts because he took an absolute battering. Now, you've mentioned also previously that... Harvey encouraged his defenders to uh go a little bit hard on certain strikers he if they did, were proving he... annoying. So how did he take um you know the European sides chopping down when Davies?
1: Oh, he used to say, hey, you've got to expect that, son. That's that's what football's all about. Joe used to have a wonder I mean, Joe had a wonderful sense of humour and also a wonderful expression. And he used to always say to defenders like McGrath in the early days when he was putting together a side that essentially didn't have to get beat to start with like the champion he used to always say when you say aye oh, so-and-so is a good player and he's a good player he say aye son but he can't run without legs so if if you chop them down then you say oh he's he's quick or he or he'll score go can't run without legs son can't run without legs and <laughs> um, and having been a they shall not pass uh, defender himself alongside uh, frank Brennan, he was always aware that he wanted that type of defender um, in his side and always had them because uh, Moncure, um came through as a kid in the Championship side without being a regular but was a regular in this, the European side and the FA Cup side, of course.
0: Most certainly. I mean, we're going to do a special episode just on the cup, sure. Um Cup sure. in a few weeks' time. But... One game that always stands out is is the game against Rangers. Pitch invasion, uh, quite feisty in the in the stands. Um, what was Joe's reaction after that? Absolutely. Well, in a, in a way, I mean, his reaction was always buzzing. Because for a start, A, were in the
1: final. And B, it, it was always a man's game to Joe. And that was a man's game. Uh, so he, he was buzzing. Um, uh, and it was... It was a, a phenomenal game. I mean, the two games. I remember even, a, I remember the hostility. We went up, we went up there. Seventy-eight, eighty thousand people in the first leg at Rangers. We'd lost our centre half, uh, Oli Burton, because of trouble with Dave Elliott, who was taking the fit bless him on, the, and and. Ollie's roommate was so upset, couldn't play. John McNamee went in, got a penalty against us. Willie McFaul saved the penalty. Note, note, down here, they were—they still fancied themselves terrifically. Huge following. Even the fans ride it down here, the Rangers fans, as, as you know, uh, ride it down here. But even the press, I remember the press, were wonder- the, the Rangers press, were wonderful to us when we went up there. Oh, Jordy, Kirk, with the soap jordies as jocks with their brains knocked out. Uh, so it was a oh, wonderful lads come in eh? and they're giving you wee drams of whiskey in the and you had to take it. You weren't given an option, get it down here, sort of thing. And you're trying now, I hate whiskeys it happens, but like paint wine, but uh, there we went. And then down here it was the same in the in the in the in the, in the um, press box. But the minute they went two down the press turned on The press, the Scottish press, turned round and started slagging us unmercifully in the press box while the riots going on on the pitch. So the the mood changed. Anyway, I used to say, I had a bit of fun. I said, anyway, you daft jocks. It was your own lot that started the riot because it was Scott and Sinclair that scored our goal. It was Scottish. You were Scottish lads. And in fairness to to the Rangers club, they were absolutely brilliant. They when newcastle were off the field for that seventeen minutes the chairman went into the newcastle united dressing-room and said gentlemen whatever happens you've beaten us fair and square whatever happens if the game's abandoned and we don't get back on to finish it etc i will formally um, withdraw from the competition and you will be through to the final there's no question of it having to be replayed on the neutral ground etc etc which is wonderful and we formed a wonderful relationship with the Glasgow Rangers players that played in that game Um, uh, present of the first club which are the supporters club from that era and all the great players that they had Colin Steen, Willie Henderson um, uh, Willie Johnson, they all come down to Tyneside for dues regularly, etc., etc. Um, so there was a there was a great atmosphere, but it was electric, and it was one of the, those games where suddenly your blood runs cold when the when the riot started and the bottles start coming over the top of Willie's head under the under the pitch. And when the game resumed, my everlasting thought when I looked down to the Gallagher end the left-hand post of Woolly McFall, halfway up it, was piled empty bottles that had been cleared off the pitch, were stockpiled up the side of the goalpost, and it took police on the pitch with um, with uh, Alsation Dogs to clear the Scottish fans off and pen them in so the game could be finished. And um, It was just part of the riotous
0: run um, that took us to the final. And on to the final... Did Joe from the off. Think we've got this in the. You know, this is ours to lose.
1: He did, but he, he knew how good this team was, and um, because he was a very good friend of Jock Steen. he was very, very close to Jock uh, who had phoned him up and said, "By the way, Joe, you are playing the best side in Europe. Forget that this isn't the Champions League, because the qualification. This currently, this Dozer side is the best side in Europe." Uh, they had and Don Revy told Joe exactly the same thing we've got to bear in mind that Uspez Doza had beaten Leeds United earlier that season in the same competition in Leeds it was the fabulous Leeds United side under Don Revy uh, they, the Jack Charlton Norman Hunter side and they were our champions, the English champions, that season and they'd lost to Ush and we were playing those Pestosa in the final. But we were almost at this situation by then that we thought we could walk on water. Not in a big-headed way. Um, the name was on the cup. We had our ability and Joe kept saying, play to our strengths, play to our strengths. Um, and actually, it, it in... In the two-leg final, it all happened in, in 45 minutes each game, not 90 minutes. Um, the 3-0 here was not, 0 and then the second 45 minutes was 3-0. The game out there were 2-0 down, the second 45 minutes was called 3 again. So Newcastle won the Cup with two 45-minute real tirades at the opposition uh, both here and there and the wonderful thing i forget 50, 51, whatever his age was the the match, the final appropriately in Budapest was played on Joe Harvey's birthday Uh, also on John McNamee's birthday as it happened but on Joe Harvey's birthday and I can't think of a better present for a terrific, terrific manager who may have been born in Yorkshire but loved Newcastle with a passion of any Geordie
0: ever had. What was it? Do you think that made him stop here um, and made him fall in love with the club even after retirement? Um, what, what, what was it? About he the came
1: city? to Newcastle originally at the right time. He came to Newcastle to play when Stan Seymour was putting together after the first, the Second World War was putting together a side that again had to come up from the second division, um, but then went on and won the Cup three times in five years with him. He formed a love and a camaraderie with the the, uh, townside people that never failed, never died. He never moved away. When he finished at Newcastle United, there was never a question of managing anywhere else. He stayed on as the sort of hierarchy, did some scouting for Newcastle United and was just an overload in a way that Bobby Robson stayed on after retirement of Newcastle United and, and didn't go and live elsewhere in the country. He retired, but didn't go and live elsewhere in the country. Um, and Joe's passion was... Taught. Joe, if ever there was an adopted Jodie, it was Joe Harvey because he, was, he had the trait the very best traits of all journeys.
0: Most certainly. So you're you're flying back on that plane with the players with Joe Harvey's at the, the famous photograph, film with a, a glass of whiskey and, and Bob Monker holding the, the trophy um, just over behind um, Harvey. And then, what was that plane journey like?
1: It was. It was almost. It was just a continual, uh, if the party we'd had after the game, where we'd had uh, David Macbeth, who was a, the local uh, singer at Grace Club in Newcastle, who loved football, um, and it had a hit with Hello Mr Blue in the Hip Reader. He sang after the game in the uh, dressing room and at the party back in the hotel, which was on an island in the in the Danube. Uh, he led the singing, um, Frankie Clark, who was a, a, an excellent singer and who by the way in his old age now in Nottingham has actually put a band together and is now singing in the band around the clubs in Nottingham uh, it, it long long last having football got in the way for about 50 years and he's now back to his true love which is singing. McNamee had a, a, this big tough um, desperate Dan of a man had a voice uh, the the highest falsetto voice you could ever wish to hear in, there was a party that just continued throughout the trip back. Newcastle United knew how to play under Joe and we knew how to party under Joe. Um, And the amazing thing is, come back, um, amazing reception at the airport, all the way down from the airport to St James's Park, the route was lined with, there wasn't a a single split in the line of fans. And... um, we were in the bus following the the, the, the uh, players' bus, and they had the roof open, the sunroof open, and Bob was out. So he's standing on a table in the bus, out waving the cup at all the punters, etc. And all of a sudden, there's this flashing light and an explosion, of as if there'd been um, thunder and lightning. Everybody looked round, and he'd waved the cup into the um, telephone wires that were crossing the road, and. The whole place lit up with sparks, and there was a big black gash down the cup, where it was marked with the with the the burn. Uh, and I almost thought that our skipper and hat trick hero was going to be burnt alive before he got to St James's
0: Park. The cup was certainly burnt. <laughs> that is a very interesting tale, to say the least. What was Joe Harvey's reaction to winning that cup? How proud was he to to do the same feat in many ways as he obviously lifted the FA Cup as a captain. If yeah, you yeah,
1: uh, he had done that, um, and as a, a manager, he um, he won the second division championship. But this was utopia to Joe, and he wanted. And you've got to bear in mind: for three seasons, including that, for the next two seasons as well, Newcastle United never were never knocked out of Europe on goals. They lost either on the way goal rule in the next two years or on penalty shootout after a tie. So, Newcastle United, over two games, never lost in Europe for three successive seasons. They went out on the way goal rule the next year In the following year, they went out on penalties. Uh, so, for three years, it wasn't, people might look back and say, oh, Newcastle won a European trophy but it was a bit like Leicester winning the Premier League title, it was almost a fluke, it was a one off and never to be repeated. In fact they had three marvellous years in Europe and, and I was talking to you Andrew about Joe's attitude, you know let us get it right and let them worry about us. Around that time Joe, you, the minute the draw was made and, and we carried the draw Joe Harvey would make arrangements to fly out and watch the opposition, whoever Newcastle had drawn. and You would think this was the master tactician at work, Like um, he had to see them and he was going to come back with a, a, a notebook full of tactical, like you see managers now on the touchline during the game. I don't I don't know how to watch the game because they're that busy writing in a book on the need for the half time or the full time. Joe used to arrange to go out now joe was a great believer in publicity as well uh, in you know get newcastle up there let the fans in it's the fans club so he took several members of the press out on these spying missions with him can you imagine that happening now so i flew out i all wherever newcastle were playing i always went twice i went out with joe to spy on the opposition before the game and then i went out for one of the two legs. which was wonderful for copy for here, and I remember, for example, after Newcastle um, uh, won the European Face Cup, withdrew into Milan in in the Fair Cup, uh, which was absolutely massive. One of the legendary clubs, and still are. They were playing the only match we could watch them. They were playing Como in the Italian Cup, which is up on Lake Como, which is one of the holiday resorts. Glorious, glorious place. Newcastle used to stay there whenever they played in Italy. Uh, and They were playing Como. So up we went to Como to watch the game, Joe and a few of the press lads. Uh, Now they didn't have programmes uh, on the continent in those days, so there was no programme for this. So I went down to the dressing room. Then into my dressing room, knocked on the door. Again, can you imagine that? Can you give me the team? They give me the team, back up into the stand, sitting next to Joe during the match. That's a team, Joe, so we know who their players are, etc., etc. Joe was wise cracking, telling jokes, smoking his fags during the game, passing some coming. Oh, the centre-forward's quick, he's good on his left side. I'd be making notes, job would be done. I would file a story, we'd all go out for dinner that night lobsters out of there lobster pot and etc etc fly back home we went out to milan for the game i'm stuck in the hotel the day of the game i'm in the hotel in the afternoon just sort of whiling away time before we go to the San sea night there's a bang, bang 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 on the door what's it what's it open the door it's joe he says, get up. Ah. He said, can I come in." I said, yeah, in you come. He says, have you got your notes from, you know, when we were over to watch Inter Milan, have you got your... I said, aye, aye, of course I've got my notes there because I want to refer to them when I'm writing the build-up of the game. He says, God, give us info, what was, their, what was the team again? He said, I've got a team meeting off now. I've got to tell the lads something about the opposition, apart from what's happening. So I give him the team that he'd seen that day the, the notes about what he said about certain players. You know, he's quick, he tucks in on this side, and et cetera, et cetera. And so that he could address the team meeting now that sounds as if you're, fly, you're flying by the seat of your pants and by today's standards you are but Joe would spend much more time talking about the way we played than, than worrying about them let them worry about how they're going to handle Wyn Davies and we aren't going to worry about how we're going to handle or get past Fischetti who was possibly the best fullback in the world at that time who played for Inter Milan and by the way just in case Joe, you think Joe was flying by his pants and got it wrong Newcastle got a draw in the San Siro and beat them at St James's Park so Joe had an ability to to make life simple and not complicated and I always remember talking to Supermac who was brought up under Joe Harvey When he got in the England team, Alf Ramsey was brilliant. He then inherited Don Revy, who all he did was give every England player a dossier on the opposition that was thick enough to choke a horse and tell them to take it to bed at night and read it on the three games, the three days building up the game. And and, uh, Superman used to say, if you read that book, you'd be terrified. If you read that book, everybody was a superman that you were playing against, would terrify you. Supermarket used to throw it in the corner and go out and play and scored five goals against Cyprus in the Riverside. side as a consequence. He was brought up in the Harvey way of thinking that you can absolutely terrify by making the smallest fence into Beecher's book. Most well,
0: certainly. Um, so then on to, we we'll fast forward to the FA Cup final... Um, yeah. Newcastle beaten 3 0 by Liverpool. Obviously, the run was, was brilliant. Um, beat Burnley. Uh, Supermark scored a wonderful goal where he kind of shrugs the, the defender yeah. into next week, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, facing Liverpool with the likes of Keegan in the side. What was Joe's attitude going into that game?
1: Which game is it? The, the, the FA Cup final. The final itself. I think this is the one time that Joe was out thought. With hindsight, we we went and stayed at Selzen Park, a hotel in London, on the outskirts of London, for the full week leading up to the game. Now, the reason we did that, I told you earlier on, that um, Bob Stokoe and Harvey were the greatest of mates. They were two real big mates and bob stoker had taken sunderland to that same hotel the year before and sunderland had beaten leeds against all the odds and joe said well if if it was good enough for bob and it worked for bob and they wouldn't cope against the odds we are playing against the odds we'll do the same in fact the players got bored silly over the full week locked away in the middle of nowhere with nothing to do. I mean, the only entertainment they got in the full week was um, was, Frank Clark had took his guitar with him and sang Peggy Sue to them every night, which was the Big Buddy Holly hit of the time, which was wonderful the first night, but on the sixth night, everybody was yawning. and there. Um, so the build-up wasn't good. They then did television, on the day we were going to play, did a live Broadcast from the two hotels on the evening before the game, the Newcastle Hotel and the Liverpool Hotel, and they did it live with the managers, with the players behind them, Joe Harvey and Bill Shankly, and Bill Shankly outthought Joe, and he'd done all the big things in his career, Bill, and you know he had the, he always had the the patter, you know he. When he went to the cop, he always stood. When the team ran out at the cop, he always stood by the side of the if the uh, tunnel as you were coming out. The team in Newcastle were coming out, and as a, I can't do a Scottish accent, we had a thick Scottish accent, and he used to do, I ah, you can run, but you cannot hide. You can run, but you cannot hide." As the, as each Newcastle player went back, he, he he did the psychology thing, and he really took off joe about what was going to happen in that cup final and super mac to this day says that any chance newcastle had went with joe's team selection when we played with Stuart bowclough out wide on the right the whole way through and he was so quick it was untrue um Barra. He, he was quick he got down to the byline crossed near a far post and MacDonald and tudor one went to the near post one went to the far post newcastle got a load of goals of that for some reason joe listened to advice from elsewhere that suggested he should play jinky smith instead of barrowcliffe he played jinky smith supposedly wide Jinkie's never a wide player central midfield he got narrower and narrower and narrower it didn't work Jinkie was um, substituted during the second half I always remember that Stuart Barrow was so decimated when he was dropped I actually went into his room at the hotel because Barrow was a big mate of mine I went to his room in the hotel and talked myself out of his story to save Stuart's career because he was going to walk out on Newcastle because he was so decimated at being left out of the side. And I persuaded him that that would do him nothing but harm, etc., etc., etc. And so instead of having the story, uh, United Star walks out on the eve of cup final, I had no story at all. I didn't want the story. You've got to sometimes protect the player, and I stopped that happening. And I think it was the only time in Joe's career I thought he got the final occasion wrong it, it was very near the end of Joe's time with Newcastle in fact it was 74 Shankly never managed again after winning the cup against Newcastle that was his last job as manager and Joe by two years later 76 when we went to Wembley again in the League
0: Cup final Gordon Lee was a manager um, Did Joe ever admit that to you that he thought he got the final wrong? No
1: uh, no, and I, I think he was too proud a man to do that, uh, and you've got to remember that when um, Supermac thought he got it wrong with the team selection of, of Barra, dropping Barra, without question, uh, Supermac will tell you the best manager he ever played for was Joe Harvey. Um, nobody can get it right all the time, the great managers get it right most of the time, not all the time, you can't get it right all the time. Uh, Joe was distraught because we played so poorly on the day. But you've got to remember, and people don't, that that season, Newcastle got to the FA Cup Final by winning every single round away from home, and Supermac scored in every single round away from home. Because the one time they won at home, 4-3 against Nottingham Forest, it had to be replayed because of pitch invasion, and we won at Everton on a neutral ground. The semi-final was on neutral ground, we, all, we won through, third round onwards, right to Wembley, away from home, with Supermax going away from home. That is a feat in itself. The final overshadows that because it was Liverpool, it was Kevin Keegan and John Tushik. and I did a Chronicle story, uh, I, oh I didn't, I was on Time TV's Television, who asked to interview me and I said, uh, I fear for the final. And I fear because of uh, Toshak and Kagan. And I've never been so upset to be right in my life because it was them two done us.
0: You see, Harvey then left a couple of years later. Fans had become a bit restful. Um, yeah. Was he upset? I mean, he resigned. Yep. But, it, but the pressure was starting to build. It was. Um, was he upset with the way the fans sort of turned or was it just the right time for everyone to have new, a new slate? I
1: think, I think he was upset because he's a very proud man. Um, he had identified with the fans the whole of his life, both as a player and as a manager. Um, but when hindsight came, he realised what happened. It doesn't matter how great you are, your moment... Your negative moment will come. Um, it is the nature of the game. Unless you're clever enough, like Alex Ferguson won the title for Manchester United, knew that that side wasn't was going to go slightly over the hill, got out on a high. What a clever boy to do that, because other managers haven't. Um, Brian Clough, the greatest manager Nottingham Forest have ever had and possibly ever will took them down, had a bit of an alcohol problem, bless him, uh, and the fans didn't turn on him, but there was murmurs because he wasn't the cluffy that had won the European Cup. Joe Harvey uh, wasn't quite the manager. It doesn't matter how good you are. If you stay at the club for an eternity and you don't know when to say, I'm getting off the bus, you will get moments like that. But they don't tarnish images. Harvey is still the most successful manager Newcastle has had. Clough is without question the best manager, not in the force of that.
0: Most certainly. Then, returned briefly, 1980, um, I think he had th- it was three or four games, he, he, he got some good results, and saw so Arthur Cox come in. Um,
1: well, that's when I was telling you he, he, he used me to get Arthur Cox because mm. uh, he was just staying around and they were looking for who to get. The decided author would be the man, and I acted as the go between and whenever you do something like that, you know uh, I, uh, maybe just me, Andrew, but you always think afterwards, what if it goes wrong? you know, I helped to get Coxie here this was private, not in the paper. What if it doesn't work? Well, it did because he bought Keegan. and when i helped uh, when I helped uh, John Hall get power here, you suddenly think when he does get power. <gasps> What if it doesn't work again? But again, Keegan, come to my rescue. Thank you, KK. Twice, first as a player, then as a manager. He made things work. But the interesting thing is when I knew, when, when when Joe stopped and we got Gordon Lee in, what a culture shock that was, by the way, because if ever there was a manager who was a different, the complete opposite to Joe Harvey, it was Gordon Lee. Uh, and when we got him in as manager, Joe... Kicked upstairs, if you like, and did a lot of scouting for Newcastle, which was obvious thing to do because he had a great uh, eye for talent. And I remember him going, and of course he was a good friend of mine, so I knew what was happening. He went up, and he come back to St James's Park after scouting, and he said to Gordon Lee, he begged Gordon Lee to buy the central defender at Thistle. and he also begged them to buy a centre-forward at Dundee, the, uh, begged them to buy these two players and said they will do terrific for Newcastle. Uh, and Gordon Lee said, no, 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 I don't want them. I don't like Scottish League players, so I won't sign them. And the two guys, the, the central defender from Partick Thistle was Alan, Alan Hansen, and the centre-forward they asked him to buy was Andy Gray. Um, and they were unknown at the time so the eye for talent was still there but evidently Gordon Lee didn't like Scottish League players we didn't get them somebody else got them and I think they didn't do too badly in England those two lads
0: So in his retirement um, now obviously legend of the club loved during, you know after he retired during the 80s still held in such high regard did Harvey ever realise just how, how high Newcastle fans held him?
1: I think as time went on, um, it, it did dawn on him. I, he, he was never a big-headed guy. He was never—he he was never, he, he never going to be Cassius Clay or Ahmed Ali. He was never going to say, "I'm the greatest." Uh, uh, now, Brian Clough would—and by the way, he was the greatest. But he would tell you that. Um, This—that wasn't Joe's way of doing it. Um, and in lots of ways. He simplified everything uh, and it worked so much that I always find it staggering you know on the history of Newcastle. You look at St James's Park today and you've got a statue of Sir Bobby Robson inside the ground and well done Bobby, huge Newcastle fan, took them to third top. Took them into the Champions League, 17 games, 16-15 this season. Wonderful, wonderful. You've got Alan Shearer, the greatest goal scorer in the history of Newcastle. Official statue, not inside the ground, outside the ground, but very close. You've got a Jackie Milburn statue way off in another corner. The greatest goal scorer before Alan Shearer. Three guys correctly on it. Kevin Keegan, debatability should be on it both as a player and as a, a manager as well. But the the only recognition of Joe Harvey and Newcastle United was when the Fair's club, which are the fans that have formed this supporters club to keep alive what happened 50 years ago, and we're talking 50 years to the day, they approached Newcastle United and asked for permission, which... In fairness, Mike Ashley gave to put up a plaque. It's in James's Park, honouring Joe Harvey for winning the FA Cup twice as skipper and doing all the things he did as manager, including the only European success. 125 years history. That is all it is to Joe Harvey, and that wouldn't have been there without fans doing that. As the 50th anniversary comes up, we should remember that. We should remember. Joe Harvey, for what he did for this club, he still stands as the only manager who has ever won a European trophy for Newcastle in 125, 126 years. He won the FA Cup before that. He was a, if you cut Joe, he bled black and white. It uh, was my privilege to know the guy and to get on well with him. You didn't realise at the time. That you were in the presence of greatness like everybody he had his foibles, and he had everything else and um, like you have since but he stands up there with me with the great number nines and with Robson and Keegan for young fans today they remember Robson and Keegan as something very 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 special I'll tell you what Joe Harvey was all of that and he actually won something
0: well certainly he did indeed well thank you very much for joining us if you head over to chronicle live keep it with all the latest in the news and just a reminder to like and subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you do listen through and another last reminder on this episode that we are taking give us corner um, out to a live audience on may the 2nd at the Rooms in newcastle you can find all the details at ChronicleLive.co.uk.